Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Matthew Nelson is with us today. He is teaching fellow of the Word on Fire Institute. He's the author of Just Whatever, How to Help the Spiritually Indifferent Find Beliefs That Really Matter. He's edited a collection of essays recently entitled The New Apologetics, Defending the Faith in a Post-Christian Era. That is our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Nelson. Thanks, Mark. It's good to be talking with you today. Uh, we'll just, we'll just, try. and you know what, actually, let, let me ask first, I didn't think of this, but what is, what is Word on Fire? What does it do? We had Bishop Barron on a few weeks ago, but go, I don't think I asked him about what, what Word on Fire is, what it does. Why don't you tell us? Yeah, well, Word on Fire is a ministry founded by Bishop Robert Barron uh, a number of years ago. It kind of, in its seedling form, began as a platform for him essentially to get his homilies out into the airspace so that those uh, listening, whether it's through radio and then eventually through the internet, could hear his weekly sermons. Uh, that's kind of where, it, that was where it started, but then eventually it became a, a place for him to share through the internet, especially on YouTube, where he would do things that very few were doing in the Catholic space at the time, especially you know, at the time he was a priest, especially Catholic priests. And he would comment on whether it was films or books, but different pieces that were popular in the in the popular culture and he would give a catholic spin on these these various pieces whether it was again literature or film and he started to draw quite a large audience and he also was doing this at if we want to call it the prime but the prime of the new atheism and so he would engage the new atheists and this again was something that he would do uh, with great sophistication and with a sort of fearlessness. And that attracted a lot of listeners and viewers, and people wanted more. And so over time, Word on Fire Catholic Ministries becomes something quite influential. And it was just just uh, about, four, I think we are four or five years ago, the Word on Fire Institute was launched. And that's what I have been affiliated with up until recently as the Institute arm of Word on Fire Ministries, which is essentially the the education arm or the formation arm of the ministry. Um, so they're doing lots of exciting things in the Institute, and that's essentially where this book was, was uh, a fruit. It, it evolved out of an idea that came from Brandon Vaught, who's the director of publishing at Word on Fire, and uh, it was through the Word on Fire Institute Press that this book came into fruition. So I'm uh, excited to talk about it today. Very good, very good. Now, in your doc, in your introduction, uh, Matthew, you note your own reversions to reversion to Catholicism, uh, but you also note that it wasn't easy. 
you had, quote, a conversion of heart, you say, but not a conversion of intellect. Do you want to describe that experience, that process? Yeah, well, I certainly had many intellectual objections to the Catholic faith and really to Christianity in general. Uh, but I had an encounter uh, with Jesus, an unexpected encounter with Jesus in the, in the confessional at a retreat I really didn't want to be at. And uh, I wound up How as... How old were you then? How old were you? I was 25, and so I'm 38 now. So this is just over a decade ago. And, and you were uh, baptized Catholic. I, correct. Yeah. So I had grown up in a good Catholic home and had went off to university and had fallen into that secular trap that so many do and had fallen away from the faith and had reached a point of, of skepticism. And I had a lot of, a lot of questions and a lot of objections and had eventually, you know, renounced the Catholic faith and was, I was searching uh, and I wasn't entirely hostile to the faith that I had been brought up in, but, uh, anyways, long story short, I ended up at a retreat, which, uh, had an impact on me that I hadn't expected. And before I knew it, I was in the confessional and I had a conversion of heart in the confessional. It was something of a miracle. And I walked out of that sacramental experience convinced that what I was being told was true about Jesus Christ was true. And so I had this conversion of heart where I desired to follow him and know what he wanted from me in my life. But I also still had a lot of questions that I felt had had not been answered adequately up to that point. And so thus began a long search for those answers to to those questions. And that, that was a longer process. Is apologetics mostly aimed at the intellect or does it have a, a heart element to it as well? It certainly has a heart element. I think the best way to think about apologetics properly understood is it's it's a personalistic endeavor. So it's it's aimed at the whole person. And we're obviously rational creatures, but there's there's a part of us that's effective. There's a part of us that needs to be uh, reached in a more immediate and personal way than simply abstract argumentation. And this is something in his short forward, Cardinal Thomas Collins, the Archbishop of Toronto, mentions that an important aspect of a novel, if we want to call it novel, apologetic approach today is going to, is going to require an aspect of, of the heart, a, 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 a focus on reaching people, perhaps through beauty, perhaps through just a personal encounter, willingness to hear their experiences, to hear objections without getting too excited off the bat, you know, being able to show that we're interested in more than just scripture slinging or argument slinging and syllogism, uh, trading syllogisms and, and that sort of thing, but also that we're willing to, to really hear what the person has to say and what their experiences and, and uh, opinions and objections and arguments are without emotionally and you know ourselves responding uh, in a way that's just going to ultimately put a rational dialogue out of the question. So yes, I would say you know I would say that this is a really this idea of evangelizing or doing apologetics through the heart is is an, is a very important aspect. And this is something that Blaise Pascal in the 17th century 
uh, wrote about quite profoundly. And he provided a sort of three-step strategy to reaching the head through the heart. And in his pensées, he writes that the first step of doing apologetics in this modern, for him, it was the, this modern enlightenment age. We're now in a more of a postmodern sort of mix with an enlightenment period. It's sort of, it's sort of a jumble of a lot of things, but what, what Pascal said, which is probably, I think become even more applicable to our time now is that the first step is to convince people that re religion is reasonable. And that doesn't necessarily mean through argumentation, but that through the things that religion is trying to provide, this idea of salvation, this idea of identifying sin and then looking for a remedy for it, that these things actually are the, they get to the very heart of human longing. And so Pascal, number one, wanted people to see that religion is worth thinking seriously about. But then number two, and this is what I find really interesting, he said the second step is to make uh, religion attractive, specifically make Christianity attractive. And he, and he adds to that, he says, make good men wish it were true. Hmm. And that's this idea of reaching out to the heart and making people desire to actually, in an effective way, uh, desire for what Christians are claiming to really be the case. And then finally says, step three, once you've, once you've gotten them to that point, this is when we prove that it's true. So show religion is reasonable make Christianity attractive, and then prove that it's true. And I think that that, that applies to that, to that uh, dual approach that you were talking about, Mark, this idea of reaching people with apologetics through the heart and the head. Yeah. Big question. What is the new apologetics? Is this, is this an identifiable group of people? That is a, does it originate in, in any specific places? Uh, is it organized in, in any way? What is, what is the new apologetics? Yeah, I know that's a good question. That's sort of the fundamental question when this book is being published. I think a lot of people are thinking, well, number one, what is the new apologetics? And number two, who's this Matt Nelson guy that claims to, to be the editor of a book called The New Apologetics? It's, it's one thing for you know, the eventual saint Pope John Paul II to come out with this idea of the new evangelization, but now we've got this, the new apologetics on the scene and, and it's this, you know, probably largely unknown Canadian guy that's putting together a book on the new, new apologetics. Well, all I'm trying to do with this book is really further what the new apologetics, or sorry, the new evangelization is setting out to do. So that's one, one aspect to think about what the new apologetics are, is it's just another aspect or another way of looking at the new evangelization. Um, John Paul II talked about ardor, method, and expression and finding new ways to, to address those three aspects of evangelization. And that's essentially what we're doing here with the new apologetics, but just with a more explicit focus on meeting the questions that those who disagree with us pose uh, in ways that are updated and relevant to the current cultural situation. So the first thing I would say is the new apologetics is just uh, another way of thinking about the new evangelization. It's not something different. It's, it's, just an, it's just another way of thinking about the new evangelization, which is maybe an even more general term, whereas the apologetics aspect of this whole program 
is specifically geared towards engaging those who we've proposed the gospel to who now meet us with questions or objections. The second thing I would say the new apologetics are, are a addressing of the most up-to-date cultural needs and circumstances. Uh, and so, you know, this idea of the new apologetics is going to arise out of the fact that culture is constantly evolving. And so there will be a time probably in the not so distant future when another book, you know, probably more originally titled than the new apologetics, but another book much like what we've done here will be needed because there will be, there will be new issues and there will be new needs of the culture then than what is needed now. And so the new, the new apologetics is also addressing the needs of the culture right here, right now. Uh, yeah. and trying to give us again, some up-to-date reflections from some of the brightest minds in the Catholic tradition. And then finally, I would say the new apologetics, this is a third way of thinking about it is it's a personalistic approach. This is something that Cardinal Avery Dulles wrote about, uh, I believe at first things, actually, there's an article. He probably wrote about it in more than one place. But what he really believed apologetics needed in the modern period was uh, an emphasizing of John Paul II's personalism and an integration of that philosophy, which is also a theological idea. It's directly related to what Christ teaches us in the gospel, that we are though we are a collective, we're also individuals with individual needs. We kind of talked about this already. Every individual who we find ourselves across the table from will have different experiences, different uh, opinions, different objections, different hunches, different uh, ways of different methodologies. Everybody is going to bring something a little bit different to the table and they're going to have different needs that we as apologists will need to consider. And so the new apologetics is something that manifests even in every individual encounter we have with individual particular people. So this is a general framework that you get in this book, but it's also something that we have to take and then be light on our feet with, because with every individual person that we interact with, we will need to uh, tailor these things we're reading and these arguments that we're contemplating and hopefully delivering. We're going to have to tailor those to the person sitting across the table. So those are three ways that you can think about the new apologetics. Yeah. Your first entry is by Stephen Bullivant, and it certainly does address a very timely issue, and that is the phenomenon, the oft-noted phenomenon, of the nuns, right? Mm -hmm. Young Americans who don't really have any sectarian identity. Uh, they don't go to church. But he indicates an important distinction that, that really opens an opportunity for the new apologetics. It says the nuns are not the nothings right? Capital N, nothings. What, what is the distinction that he draws there? Well, here's a, an example. It's another shade on what I just said. What, what Stephen does, and this is a great way to open up the book, I think, is he draws... Now, he's a sociologist and a theologian. So from a sociological perspective, he talks about how it's important to collect data on groups of people, which we've done on this so-called 
group of nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And there are certain properties or features of this particular group that we pay attention to uh, that are important. And yet someone might respond. And again, this is going back to what I just said a minute or two ago that, yeah, well, we have this sociological data about the nuns, but the nuns are an, an eclectic group of atheists and agnostics and indifferentists and so on. And so we can't really say anything meaningful about this group because they're so diverse within this category. And what he's trying to do is draw a line down the middle and say the sociological data that we have on this group is important and it does tell us something significant when it comes to taking the information and then applying it in real time to this project of evangelization. But then there's also a need to understand that there are limits to such sociological data and that we also need to consider the individuals. And so not only is it true that there are subgroups within this category of the nuns, but then in those subgroups, again, there's going to be a degree of individuality that comes with every person within that group. So he's not really, you know, planting his flag on one side or the other of the debate of whether we need to think of the nuns as one big group and that's the important part or whether we need to renounce this idea of generalizing these people and just thinking about them um, according to their individual nuances. He's saying both, it's a both and. And so I think it's, it's a really good place to, to start and it's an excellent essay. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Yeah. yeah the, the next few essays point to something that you sort of indicated in your discussion of Pascal. Uh, Bobby Angel has a piece mm -hmm. called Awakening the Indifferent. Okay, we've got the problem of indifference. Uh, mm -hmm. Father Blake Britton next uh, explores why Catholics fall away from the church. And one, one problem being simple ignorance of, of what the faith is all about. And then Todd Warner uh, lays out the issue of boredom. So indifference, ignorance, boredom. I think that, that speaks to the, the person-based approach. It's not mm -hmm. so much in that case that they, I don't like this dogma of the church. Uh, this doctrine I, I, I can't go along with. It really is a more experiential, uh, personal kind of response that that they have, and I, I think that I think that that is that is correct. We have to shake people. You know, mm -hmm. the the second point that Pascal made: make them desire what the church offers. Tell people, don't you know how wonderful? This is, I, I repeat this on a lot of the podcasts, how, how great it is for a nun, or how, what a loss it is for a nun not to be able to have that ritual of prayer. That, uh, you in the confessional, okay? That experience is closed to them. 
that we've got to hit, shake them, rouse them out of that indifference. The ignorance would be these truths are such wonderful things mm -hmm. for you. Is this, I mean, was, was there a reason you arranged these, these three pieces? Maybe I should put it that way. Uh, ignorant, uh, indifference, ignorance, boredom. That was deliberate on your part, yes? <laughs> well, I wish I could say so. I, I'm not sure it was deliberate on my part. Um, that might have been, you know, more of a hats off to the publishing department for, for, the, for finalizing that order. But, but I suppose the bigger picture here is that all of this falls underneath the heading of the new audiences, which is part one of this book. Yeah. And so we've got those groups. And then we've also got Francis Beckwith writing on the moral relativists and Stephen Barr writing on scientific materialism. So the idea is here to address all of these, all of these different groups that are most likely to be encountered by us today in this culture. It doesn't mean that there aren't more that we could add to this particular part of the book, but Certainly, uh, these would be the most prominent and most expected uh, categories of audiences, if we want to call them that, uh, which we do call them in the book, uh, that we're, we would encounter in today's culture. So, yeah, I suppose that, that there is some rhyme, in, um, <laughs> reason, there is some reason to the rhyme here, but I don't know if I can take full credit for it myself. Yeah, yeah. But you, you, they're, they're in there because you, you agree. These are yes. serious problems within, and, and, the, and again, it's not, it, it's sort of the, the, their heart problems, right? Not head problems. True. Yes, that, that's a really good point. Yeah. And there is, you know, there's a sense in which you see here a transition from heart problems to head problems. And yet, as you read through them, the genius of these, of these pieces is that there is to a degree both aspects in all, all of these different categories. So just because scientific materialism is ultimately a philosophical worldview doesn't mean that there isn't a, uh, an aspect of that related to the psychology of a person, to the, um, again, to the experiential aspect of being a human that drives somebody to accept scientific materialism. That's no different than those of us who are Christians or Jews or, or whatever our religious affiliation may be. The point is that every human being is going to not be a mind dislocated from the body, but the senses and the intellect are at work all the time together. And hopefully they're harmonizing, but, um, but yeah, so there is there is an interesting progression here in this part from from what we we, we might call he heart issues to more heady issues. Yeah, you you mentioned the Beckwith, and mm. he he ties the embrace of moral relativism on the part of many people, especially young people, to the idea that if we don't embrace moral relativism, we will end up with intolerance. Too much intolerance in society, too much repression in society. And I think that we are at the point now, uh, Matthew, where we can say, look, 
every society draws lines of tolerance. You know, there, there are certain mm -hmm. things that we will not tolerate. And from what I've seen, uh, a, a religious society, the American religious society in the modern world uh, actually has greater tolerance than a morally relativistic society. That what we find is that when you take away the, the transcendent order, then the human order has to follow and that is more imposing, more arbitrary, uh, and more prone to abuse than than the old than the old order. What do you think? No, oh, I think that's right. Uh, the danger of relativism is it quickly can turn into something more akin to a to a dictatorship than a tolerant worldview, which obviously harkens back to Pope Benedict's famous phrase: "The dictatorship of relativism." It's a paradox. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's there's supposed to be this idea of through relativism a greater motion towards tolerance of one another and yet some of the most dogmatic people that you will speak with are people who are card-carrying relativists. Indeed. And <laughs> it's again it's a paradox. I don't think that I don't think a lot of times that they necessarily see that. And this gets to you know, the central theme here, which is apologetics, that's the duty of the apologist is to point out where the inconsistency is. And then the real art of apologetics is to do that in a way that's going to be a catalyst for further serious intellectual engagement. So not to just point out that, oh, you know what, you're actually, you know, you think you're this tolerant relativist, but you're actually, a, you're a dogmatic relativist. And, you know, it, there are ways of asserting that very point uh, that will shut down the dialogue immediately, but there are ways to do it that will open a dialogue. And, and again, that that's, that's the art of apologetics. And that's something that we try to touch in uh, touch on in this book, as well as, as uh, ways of approaching apologetics that are going to help us to, uh, to do this fruitfully. Yeah. Uh, Brendan Vogt, you, you mentioned a moment ago, he he argues that the internet has changed apologetics uh, dramatically. Do you see the internet? Is is this our ally, or is this well? As as I as I tell audiences when I speak, that that phone in your hand is is the the primary instrument of Satan uh, at this point in the world. But what do you think? It depends on which day you ask me, probably. <laughs> um, but I would say I would say it's. Uh, it's probably both. Um, I have a complicated relationship with Twitter. I've been on and off, I think, three different times. And part of that is because, you know, the internet, it provides great opportunity for us. And it certainly adds economy and uh, efficiency to our endeavors and as evangelists to our evangelical endeavors, our desires to communicate with other people all over the world and in real time. Uh, and so there are obvious advantages to that and things that we should try to embrace. And I mean, the, the, from a Catholic perspective, right from the top down, our, our popes of this 
contemporary period have been quite sympathetic to using social media as a way of evangelization. Yeah. And so we need to pay attention to that, but there's always that caveat that comes with that, that we also need to exercise virtue, even in the use of the internet. Uh, and I think, you know, that's really the key is can you be a virtuous internet evangelizer? If you can, then the internet is an incredibly powerful tool for spreading the gospel and preaching Jesus Christ to the culture. Cause that's frankly where people are at and we need to go where people are at. But yeah. just like some saints at times in their lives were called to even go into the brothels to evangelize. That wasn't the call of every saint. Uh, and that's, and so being, you know, called into the messy space of say Twitter or Facebook might be a calling that many of us have. It might be a place that many of us should be in our efforts to be apologists and evangelists, but it might not be everybody's calling or it might not be everybody's calling right now. So yes, uh, it's, it's a, it's an important tool, but I think we need to be discerning in, in using it and, and cautious at all times. Yeah. I'm going to jump ahead as we wrap up. Cause I wanted to get to Turner Nevitt's essay. He turns to our immortal soul as a point for apologetics. And I presume this appeal is near the top in, in the new apologetics when, when certainly when we get past the, some of those, those, the ignorance factors that telling people you have an immortal soul, it, 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 it is, it is drawing you toward God. How can, how can that appeal be rejected by young people? You know, I, I, it seems to me that that, that that has to be one of the most powerful uh, uh, ways to reach out to the nuns. Yeah? Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, this was one of the, the essays that I was most excited to have written. And Turner was an obvious choice for this uh, for this essay, he's a he's a young scholar, but uh, has done some highly some notable work, uh, and is highly respected by his colleagues in that world of philosophy. And he's done some pretty important work on philosophical anthropology. And this particular essay uh, provides a way for us to meet meet people where they're at in the culture. Many people who have kind of blindly adopted worldviews like materialism uh, or scientism uh, or the various forms of naturalism. The problem with these worldviews, and this is something that Nevitt talks about in his essay, is that they outright dismiss the, even the possibility of the immortal soul. And so a lot of times I think people... They've fallen into a worldview uh, which kind of comes with its own creed or its own uh, charter of things you can believe and you can't believe. And rather than thinking rationally through the various uh, positions that you're somewhat forced to take as a materialist or as a, uh, someone who has embraced scientism or et cetera, et cetera, um, you, you adopt the beliefs possibly even under 
the cover of a slogan without really giving it a whole lot of reflection of why it is that, that that's the case. And yeah. so what, what Turner emphasizes and, and, and he writes with great nuance and subtlety here, even in 1500 words, which wasn't a whole lot of space for him or any of the other essays to write in. But what he says is if you can, if you can learn how to show the weaknesses and the holes in world world views that um, necessarily reject the idea of an immortal soul, again, naturalism, scientism, materialism. And if you can poke holes in those worldviews, you can then make room for a, a case for the immortal soul. And as I say in the introduction, this book certainly contains many arguments, but, more, but I would say that more primarily what we're trying to do in all these essays is provide a framework within which to present arguments. So it's not like Dr. Nevitt in this essay is trying to, to present a knockdown case for, uh, for the existence of the immortal soul, but he's providing a framework within which we can provide such arguments. So I, I think it's a really down to earth but also philosophically subtle proposal that he makes in, in his particular article. The book is The New Apologetics, Defending the Faith in a Post-Christian Era. Matthew Nelson, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Mark. It's a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.